Hello. This weekend, I traveled up to Cumberland House in east-central Saskatchewan. The 100-kilometer gravel road leading to the small town is one of the few places in the province where you can find eastern whippoorwills. In April, I had made the trek up there and placed eight automated recording units along the road in the hopes of recording calling whippoorwills. Whippoorwills are a member of the Nightjar family, a group of terrifically well-camouflaged nocturnal birds that eat airborne insects. This foraging behavior classifies them as aerial insectivores, a group of birds that is declining faster than any other group of birds in Canada. By recording whippoorwills here, we would be able to determine how many there were, whether they were likely to be nesting, and establish a baseline data set for the northeastern edge of this species' range. As a species' population shrinks, so does their range. The range edges are among the first places a species would begin to disappear from. So, by documenting the whippoorwills here, we would be contributing data to their population decline at a continental scale. Collecting the recorders should have been simple, but my GPS decided it wouldn't work unless I held it absolutely perfectly still. Not ideal when trying to walk towards an unknown point. I tracked down two of the recorders before dark. Then it was time for a night jar survey. Despite the tedious, mosquito-drenched search for my recorders, I was excited for this survey. I had high hopes this would be where I would find my first Saskatchewan whippoorwill. As the survey points ticked by, though, without so much as a night jar whisper, I began to lose hope. A single snipe winnowed somewhere in the distance. A great crested flycatcher, presumably startled by something moving through the forest, gave an emphatic breep. I reached my final point, and when it ended without a whippoorwill, I accepted that a whippoorwill just wasn't going to happen. I woke up a few hours later, just as the sun began to poke through the trees. The beautiful, high, musical song of a winter wren greeted me as I opened my car door. I began my search once again for the recorders, painstakingly tracking down each one. As I drove down the road, I caught a glimpse of a kestrel dive-bombing a hawk with black and white bands on its tail. A broad-winged hawk. I hadn't seen one yet this year. I stopped and watched the pair of irritated raptors in my binoculars. A swallow flew through the frame briefly, and I followed it to see what it was. Probably a barn swallow, I thought. Instead, Stiff, shallow wing beats, and a long elliptical body came into view. A chimney swift, and then two more. Now, this area was known to have swifts, but they're an uncommon bird in Saskatchewan, and a sighting was completely unexpected to me. In fact, swifts have declined in Canada by 95%. Another aerial insectivore, just like whippoorwills. Prior to European settlement, chimney swifts nested in hollow tree trunks. 
after settlement, they began nesting in chimneys and forest nesting became rare. But this swift trio, 50 kilometers from anywhere, was almost certainly nesting in a tree trunk. I may not have found a whippoorwill this weekend, but finding these swifts was a fine replacement. Let's get started. You are listening to The Prairie Naturalist, Saskatchewan's nature radio show, here on 91.3 FM, CJTR, Regina Community Radio. I am your host, Gabriel Foley. This week, Katie Anderson joins me on the show. Katie is the store naturalist at Erie Wild Birds Unlimited in Pennsylvania and regularly leads tours at The Biggest Week in American Birding a birding festival located in northwestern Ohio. I'll chat with her about the biggest week, how festivals contribute to birding culture and conservation, and what some of her favorite festival experiences have been. But first, last week on the program, Justin Peter, Director of Programs and Senior Naturalist at Quest Nature Tours, joined me. Justin has also been a regular face at the annual Festival of Birds in Point Pelee, Ontario, where he leads nature walks and shares his considerable knowledge of the park's natural history. I talked with him about the Festival of Birds, how it compares with other birding festivals, and why he loves Point Pelee so much. If you want to learn more about natural history, You should follow his incredibly educational account on Twitter and Instagram, at birder underscore Justin. And if you missed the show, you can find a link to the episode on the Prairie Naturalist Facebook page, or on Twitter, at the PR Naturalist. The Prairie Naturalist can be heard on the radio at 91.3 FM in Regina, on the web at cjtr.ca, on Access Television Channel 700, on SaskTel Max channel 806, and on your smartphone if you download the CJTR app. The Prairie Naturalist is also rebroadcast on Sundays at 7.30 in the evening and on Wednesdays at 12.30 during the lunch hour. Last week, I talked with Justin Peter from Quest Nature Tours about his involvement with Point Pelee National Park's Festival of Birds and his perspective on birding festivals. This week, I'll be going south of the border, focusing on the biggest week in American birding. The biggest week, located on the shores of Lake Erie in Ohio, almost directly south of Point Pelee, is a fairly young festival that has gained enormous popularity in a short time. Katie Anderson is the store naturalist for the Erie Wild Birds Unlimited and regularly leads tours at the Biggest Week 
and has been an attendee for years. She joins me on the line from Erie to chat with me about birding festivals in the States and the biggest week in particular. Welcome to the Prairie Naturalist, Katie. Ah, hi, thanks, Gabe. Thanks for having me here. So, Katie, can you tell me about your first biggest week? So my first biggest week was amazing. Um, It was in 2012, and I had actually won a contest um, put on by Black Swamp Bird Observatory in conjunction with the Big Year movie, and they had two grand prizes, which were... um, a visit to the festival, all your expenses, you know, covered, all your trips covered, things like that. So I just kind of dove into it at first, <laughs> which was uh, absolutely amazing. I had never done anything quite like that before, that the scope of the festival, and that was when the festival was only, um, I think, what, three years old that year, um, the scope of the festival was just amazing. Um, and I had a great time. I made so many great friends. I saw so many amazing birds. Um, and that just, I got hooked. (laughs) And and what year was this? That was, uh, 2012. And so the festival hadn't been happening for very long at that point. No, no, it had not. So, um, the festival, this was its 10th anniversary this year, so... Um, it, like I said, it was just a few years old at that time. But there are, there's a lot of people who are attending the festival now, which is amazing for only being 10 years old. Yes. Well, the area has definitely had a draw to it for birders already. Um, it was a known, uh, migration hotspot, uh, uh, people who aren't familiar with migration along the, the Great Lakes, especially Lake Erie, when you have birds that are moving north uh, in the springtime there, when they hit these barriers, in this case, the lake and stuff, they're going to kind of set down, fuel up, kind of consider their options before continuing on north. And so we have these little basically migrant traps that happen along uh, the shores of Lake Erie here. And that place was known for it. So they had kind of a good base to start from. Um, but the festival kind of expanded on that and really just with incredible organization, um, the most amazing group of volunteers, I think, in the world. Um, and of course, Kim Kaufman, director of Black Swamp Bird Observatory, her vision just really helped this uh, festival to, to take off um, and just become better and better every year. Kim <sighs> is really passionate about sharing her enthusiasm and love for birds with other people. Um, That is just one of the first things that you notice about her when you you meet her. Um, How do you think that that plays into birding festivals in general? Uh, You definitely, you definitely have to have that passion there. Um, Festivals are a lot of work, whether they're, they're small, you know, they're local weekend ones around the U S um, or to big events like this um, and, and probably the Rio Grande Valley and some of the other major hot spots around the States. Um, so absolutely, you have to have that enthusiasm of, of wanting to share these birds and their lives and this amazing event um, that's going on um, to, to motivate uh, everybody to put in all of the work, all the hard effort that goes into these festivals. And how many people are coming to these festivals? 
Lots. Um, 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 of the last couple of years, I believe they've had around like 90,000 close to maybe a million visitors um, over the course of the festivals. Um, the festivals itself, um, it's a 10 day event. Um, and I know we've had people from all 50 states, something like over 50 countries, you know, six continents. We have yet to get a penguin to come from Antarctica, but, (laughs) um, so, I mean, just, it's just a massive, massive draw that comes into this Northwestern, um, part of Ohio and just just birders galore from all around the world it's like the world's biggest family reunion and I love it <laughs> and, and so you, you mentioned that this area was fairly popular especially in the spring before the festival has the festival really increased those numbers or is that just the way it always was no I think it's definitely increased the numbers um, there has been a lot of work um, between um, various organizations, um, um, Black Swamp Bird Observatory, of course, but then local, state, and federal wildlife organizations, uh, tourism boards, um, the different cities that are located around there, Toledo and Ar- Oak Harbor and Port Clinton and stuff like that, um, they have seen the benefits of having all these people come. Uh, it's a massive economic impact um, on an area that probably wouldn't be seeing those numbers otherwise. Um, it's something like a $40 million annual economic impact for the area. Wow. Um, so it's, it's definitely, I mean, the numbers have definitely grown over the years. Um, one of the things the festival has done has helped introduce people to other birding spots in the area. Um, McGee Marsh was, was kind of the known spot, but there are so many other fabulous habitats there, each with their own sets of birds and stuff. And the festival, actually, all of the trips are designed to take people away from McGee Marsh and introduce them to all of these different really cool places, all these metro parks and, and state lands and some private lands um, within the area there. And so um, I think that has definitely helped a lot um, in, in bringing more birders in. So what is it that makes one spot better than another spot? You're not just going like to the festival and just wandering around. You're going to very specific locations, right? Yes. Yes. Um, These are spots that in one form or another um, either act as migrant traps or else their habitat is unique enough that there are certain birds found there that might not show up elsewhere. Um, they are spots that kind of have histories of turning up some unique and and different birds in some cases. Um, so a lot of the places that we'll visit fall into the Toledo Metro Park system, um, which is an absolutely amazing system of parks and there's all different habitats covered by it, um, and so, like, there'll be trips over to um, Oak Openings uh, Metro Park, and that's an old oak savanna. Not a lot of that habitat left, hmm. and it gets birds there that you wouldn't be seeing up along on the boardwalk there. Um, we have trips that go out to the east of there and, and go out to um, uh, Pipe Creek um, Wildlife Management Area and stuff, also along the lakeshore. And it gets, you know, it sticks out into the water. So it's got this great little woodland habitat that, again, kind of acts as this wonderful trap for birds. But it also has some marsh and stuff. So you can mix into some rails and bitterns and things like that. And just all kinds of unique habitats like that around. So those, that's what we look for, places that are different 
um, that have their own kind of unique sets of birds um, that, you know, generally are, are fairly productive. Uh, we do have some trips that go to private lands and stuff that help us showcase different conservation partnerships and things like that, too. So that's kind of what we look at when we look at the different spots that we go to. And you mentioned the term migrant trap a couple of times. Can you yes. go into some detail on that? Yes. So migrant traps are basically places where... Um, Migrating birds are more likely to stop for a variety of reasons. Um, in this case, many of these migrant traps are right along the shores of Lake Erie. And like I said earlier, you have birds, they're coming out of the south, they're headed north. You know, this is a pretty strenuous process, this migration. Um, there's a lot these birds have to navigate and stuff. And every now and then they're going to have to stop and refuel. Um, they like to do that along the lake shore. They're heading north and they want to cross that lake. They're, you know, these guys are heading up maybe into the boreal forest or, or the tundra even for breeding and stuff. And they hit that lake there and you can't see across and you think, okay, wait a minute, what do I want to do? So a lot of times these birds, many of these birds, which are nocturnal migrants, will kind of as the sun rises and they see the lake approaching or sometimes they're even out over the lake and they can't see land ahead of them and they see land behind them so they turn around and go back to that land there and they're going to stop and basically do a little bit of refueling make certain weather conditions are right that the crossing is conducive for them um kind of that type of thing so these areas, um, basically, they trap. You get a lot of birds that are kind of stuck into that area as they basically refuel and assess conditions and get ready to move on there. So that's, that's kind of what we consider migrant traps. Um, uh, any little kind of oasis during migration that birds find. Central Park in New York is known for this, you know, this big mm. green space in the middle of this concrete jungle. Um, that's a wonderful migrant trap. And it's not that they're really hitting any uh, barriers like the lake or whatever, but it's this only oasis within all of this concrete. So that also acts the same way. The city of Regina mm. is maybe on a bit of a bigger scale than migrant traps usually talked about, but being, you know, a city with lots of trees in the middle of the prairies. Yes. This, this has the same effect as warblers are migrating north to the forest where they want to breed. They see this, this bunch of trees and they come down. So Regina, you know, is actually quite a good spot for birding in the spring. Right. Right. Yeah. Exactly the same idea. Exactly the same idea. So, yes. Uh, you, you've been leading tours at The Biggest Week for quite some time. How, how long have you been doing it for? Um, it's been, let's see, I believe uh, seven years of leading tours now. Um, so after that first year that I was there, when I was just there as a participant, um, I hit it off with Rob, um, Rob Ritma, who is the coordinator for all the field trips for the festival. I think the year I was there might have been his first year. Um, I'm not 100% positive, but I think that was maybe his first year that he was brought on. Um, so we kept talking and stuff like that. And um, uh, he approached me later later in 2012 and asked if I would like to guide tours um, for the following season. And um, I really hadn't done anything at that scale before, but I said, sure, why not? 
I mean, I mean, it would be a chance to get back and go birding again and get to talk to people about these birds, um, which I love to do. Um, I, I can go on forever about, um, <laughs> it, 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 it's, it's kind of hard to get me to shut up sometimes about this. Uh, so yeah, I said, sure, I'll give it a try. Um, you know, just, you know, kind of ease into it with some of the easier types of trips and stuff and see how I do, um, it, you know, how it works out personality wise and uh, how how well I'm able to impart information and get people on birds and things like that. Um, and apparently I did a decent enough job because they keep asking me back. So <laughs> your, your enthusiasm for birds is so contagious. It's just wonderful. Oh, oh yeah. I, I love it. And, and I love when people get on and I don't, you know, it, it doesn't matter what it is that gets them into birds. I, I, you know, it can be that, that little, that little goldfinch in their backyard bird feeder. It, you know, it can be an eagle going over a head. It can be their first warbler, whatever. But I love when you can see that spark in people's eyes when they're like, oh, this is amazing. And I never knew this was around. And, and, you know, when they learn about some of these migratory birds and these effort migrations that they're making and stuff, and they're like, wow, I never knew this little bird did so much. I, I love that. So festivals have been around for, like, some festivals are decades old. Um, do you think that festivals now contribute to birding culture differently than they did, say, a couple of decades ago? I think they do. Um, and I think the natures of the festivals have even changed um, over the years, too. Um, I think it went from just, like, you know, come see our birds to... Uh, it's really, I said earlier, to me, Biggest Week is one of the largest family reunions. Um, it, it's this great meeting of minds of people across all these different cultures and stuff, all these walks of life, yet we all share this passion for birds. Um, I see a lot of festivals um, definitely taking a more active stance on conservation issues um, and connecting peoples with these issues at the festivals is a, is a great way. You know, they see these birds and they learn these bird stories. Um, and, you know, I think they take that away with them. Um, it's definitely to me, to me too, um, very, very, uh, very social events. Um, and again, like I said, I'm seeing a change in the festivals. We're seeing a lot more people being welcomed in, um, starting to see a, a, a sea of change in these faces here, getting a lot of young birders in. Um, and like I said, again, people from all over the world, um, people from all walks of life here, um, just coming in and, and changing the way birding is done. And I think it's fabulous. Do you have, <laughs> do you have a memorable moment from birding? at the biggest week uh, i mean, oh man there are there are just <laughs> there are just countless ones um i think um i think one of my favorites was we had um these two sisters and i think it was their 60th birthday and hmm. they were kind of doing a birding year for their for their birthday and just how excited they were. They were from California. They hadn't been out east yet. So um, just their excitement over all of these birds that they were seeing and, and being able to fulfill this dream of theirs. Um, that one definitely, that one really kind of stood out to me. Just, just 
that pure joy and how into it they were. Um, there are lots of bird sightings that just have um, blown my mind. I think I've managed to pick up a life bird like every year I've been at the festival, and some of them have just been extremely crazy. Um, a few years back, a curlew sandpiper showed up, and that's um, one of those Eurasian shorebird species that show up occasionally on like the West Coast or the East Coast, but for one to kind of plop down in the middle of Ohio was just ridiculous. And that's the only time I've ever seen at the festival people leaving a Kirtland's Warbler to go see another bird. <laughs> <laughs> uh, can, can you, can, we've got about 45 seconds left. Can you okay. just give a, uh, a quick overview of what a Kirtland's Warbler is and why it's kind of a special thing to see? Okay, so Kirtland's Warblers are... Um, um, these warblers that um, have been on the endangered species list for a long time, they have such an extremely narrow breeding habitat and actually a narrow wintering habitat, too. Um, so they were pretty much on um, kind of on the brink there um, before um, uh, people started stepping in and saying, all right, what can we do to save this bird? Um, this is one of those birds that definitely benefited from the Endangered Species Act. Um so Kirtland's warblers, their, their main breeding population is this little tiny chunk in Michigan right there. They have expanded, fortunately, in recent years to other areas, but the main population is there in Michigan. Um, and there in northwest Ohio is one of the places where you will occasionally get birds stopping on, on their migration. There aren't many spots that they seem to stop during this migration in the springtime there. So it's kind of always this like holy grail bird to be able to see it there and not have to make the trip further up into Michigan to go see them. So um, definitely an exciting bird um, to show up at the festival. And almost every year, I don't think every year, but almost every year, it seems like we have gotten one to show up. This year we had five show up, which is just unprecedented. Um, I had so, my, my life bird. Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was just unreal how cooperative they were this year. So yes, this is absolutely holy grail of a warbler on there um so it tells you something when people are leaving that bird behind <laughs> <laughs> all right well that is all the time that we've got thank you so much for coming on to the prairie naturalist today katie uh, well thank you very much for having me again this was wonderful I've been speaking with Katie Anderson, who is the store naturalist at the Erie Wild Birds Unlimited and is a tour leader at The Biggest Week. You are listening to The Prairie Naturalist on 91.3 FM, CJTR, Regina Community Radio. I'm your host, Gabriel Foley. That brings us to the end of the show. My thanks to Katie Anderson for joining me on the show today. If you have comments or questions about what you've heard, or if you missed last week's show, you can find more on Facebook at The Prairie Naturalist, or on Twitter at The PR Naturalist, or at Bird Nerd Foley, and that's nerd with an I. This has been The Prairie Naturalist on 91.3 FM, CJTR. Regina Community Radio. I am your host, Gabriel Foley. Thank you for listening.